We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Peter Overzet rules the world. That's what we're talking about today on Silly Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find me on Twitter at Yarsbergretsch. You can find my Substack at BenGretschSubstack.com. With me as always, Sean Siegel. Find all of his great work at Rotoviz. And our first guest of 2022. Not much of a surprise since we said his name in the intro, but someone that I know Sean was incredibly excited. We've been talking since like the middle of the regular season that Sean has been so excited to have Pete on. I get the luxury of talking with Pete quite frequently and doing ship chasing with him uh, once a week on Wednesday nights and, and keeping in touch with him. Sean, maybe you guys talk a ton as well, but Sean, you wrote the questions for this interview. I read through them and I was like, I'm just going to let you interview Pete pretty much because they're, they're, they're very in depth um, and, and some great, I mean, there's so many things we can talk to Pete about, but let's just run off his accomplishments. He's crushed in best ball uh two years in a row top 10 in these massive tournaments crushes high stakes fantasy season long crushes high stakes dfs i have not i don't think played dynasty with pete yet but i know you have what else do we got on that list sean well the i believe five of you finished in the top 20 of the ffpc playoff contest uh the two of you pat blair hassan so it, it doesn't really matter too much what contest we're talking about, you know that if you draft with Pete, your team is going to be very, very good. And I have had the opportunity to play some Dynasty with him, obviously. He's good there as well. He I, he needs to accept a few more of my trades, but no, we, we have a great time. And I, maybe the biggest accomplishment in the Siegel household, I always kind of mention that my sister is the best fantasy player in sort of the extended Siegel community. And her favorite fantasy article ever is still Pete's Oregon Trail article for Rotoviz a handful of years ago. So it, we know that Pete is also the funniest person in fantasy football. You put those two things together, and that's why ship chasing is event viewing every time it goes up. This is the best part about having Pete on, who we're going to eventually introduce, but we're going to do our best to make it wait as long as possible. But Pete is so talented in so many other ways, and this is why we wanted to do this long preamble and emphasize how good he is at fantasy, that people tend to not recognize how good you are, Pete. It's one of my uh, kind of favorite funny things because you, you're, like, very good at Twitter. You're very good at, you know, YouTube and, and the ways that you handle your business side of things. 
obviously just hilarious with a lot of the content you do that's a little bit funnier and sillier. But anyway, we should bring you in. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I mean, a funny note about that Oregon Trail article I did for Rotoviz, that was actually the nugget that ended up turning into what ship chasing is today because Pat and I were chronicling playing in our first FFPC leagues. And in that specific season, we hadn't even started the podcast yet. It was just an article version. And we were doing so bad that year, our team. So Pat just like stopped writing, I think. And I was just writing these weekly comedic pieces to try to get me through us having this horrible team so uh that that uh article is what uh led to ship chasing today so there, there's our fun fact of the day well pete the the big story here or one of the big stories recently is you just finished your second top 10 finish in underdog which is a half ppr event your team's very unique give us the backstory of sort of those teams and how they managed to get where they did. Yeah, that the team from this year was uh, unique in that it was actually drafted on stream uh, this summer uh, when I kind of really started streaming a ton of my best ball drafts. I probably ended up, um, you know, I maxed BBM two with 150 entries and I probably ended up streaming, I don't know, 25 to 30 of those drafts. So the fact that the, the best team I drafted and it was on stream with Eric Bimefor over on uh, spike week, who I'm sure you guys will, uh, talk with on this show at, at some point this off season as well. And yeah, it was fun because, you know, Eric and I, you get to that point when you're drafting so many teams where you kind of want to mix it up. And Eric had floated the idea, why don't we just take Devontae Adams at 103 here? There's going to be a lot of teams that aren't going to have the texture of an early Devontae Adams with the type of players that are available for you on the 2-3 turn. Um, the chat was already incredibly upset with us uh, for doing that. And, uh, you know, we ended up grabbing, I believe it was Keenan Allen and CeeDee Lamb at the 2-3 turn and got a pretty unique 0RB team there. But yeah, it is it is fun because I think zero RB, as as you guys both well know, is still a lightning rod issue. It's still uh, underutilized, I would argue, in these contests. And especially with the underdog half point PPR, I think people are even quicker to write it off. They're more willing to do it on full PPR sites, which obviously makes sense. But I found that it is often the path of least resistance on underdog and one of the few kind of edges that is still probably being underutilized by the field. That start is fascinating because I think one of the big discussion points around zero RB always becomes the success rates of running backs or receivers in the first couple of rounds. You're talking about Adams, Keenan Allen, and CeeDee Lamb. I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that none of those guys hit ceilings or it, maybe Allen hit expectations, but I, I, I mean, even Adams was not quite the wide receiver one, was not really worth the 103. CeeDee Lamb did not hit. I mean, he was good, but he did not certainly hit, I think, the early third round sort of upside scenario that a lot of us were hoping for. And PD especially didn't hit that final week, did he? Yeah, he did no. Not. But the structure, I mean, like it it, it, it winds up um, working out. Those guys at least, you know, stay healthy. They produce throughout the year. You get some spike weeks in the receiver positions. Obviously, you hit on some key players later to build that team out. But you finish top 10 overall. And I just think it's fascinating. None of those top three picks were like clear smashes. What, who else did you guys have on that roster? 
Yeah, I mean, the difference maker on that team uh, ended up obviously being Jamar Chase. Um, he had that massive game, of course, uh, against the Chiefs. And then the week 17 explosion, which was, you know, the playoff week uh, for underdog. And then we just had, you know, it was a zero RB team. And I actually just pulled up the roster here in the running back cohort was Tony Pollard, James Conner, Rashad Penny, Sony Michelle, Moster, and Alexander Madison. So obviously didn't have Moster the entire season. And it was really you know, get a, a random spike week or two um, from Tony Pollard. You get the James Conner stretch there at the beginning of the season with all the touchdowns and then Rashad Penny and Sony Michelle finishing, you know, super hot. And again, we, when we talk about these large field tournaments, you obviously have to get lucky. Um, and when you look at the puzzle pieces of those zero RB pieces, they like fit together really nicely of when that production came. And we were just constantly getting, you know, those 10 to 12 points and then allowing our firepower you know, at wide receiver to really kind of carry us the rest of the way. Well, because interesting, those running backs that you mentioned, you have Connor there. Obviously, he doesn't do a ton during the fantasy playoffs. Uh, Leonard Fournette, Cordero Patterson, a couple other guys who didn't. But the cool thing about your team is that you had a zero running back guy who got you there. And then you had a couple other zero running backs who did the damage for you when you needed it in the playoffs. And I think sometimes people miss how that element can work. Obviously, it's, it's fortunate and when you have them all on the same team, kind of like that in best ball, especially where you can't, you know, shift your roster around in season, then that's how you finish in the top 10. But you're known as a zero RB enthusiast, but obviously, you know, you're not a dogmatic drafter. You're looking for exploitable opportunities in drafts. You just mentioned a second ago, the, you know, structural opportunities or exploitable areas in best ball and that there aren't that many, but what do you see as those exploitable opportunities and how does zero RB fit into that if it does? And, and what are some other things that you like to do? Yeah, I I've thought about this a lot. Um, just because, uh, one trap that I found myself falling into specifically at the beginning of draft season last year, probably, you know, uh, June, July, when I really started ripping off a lot of these is still thinking through these structural, uh, strategies as almost um, like binary fixed things where it's like, all right, I take my wide receiver in the first round. So then naturally my next four picks are going to be wide receivers or tight ends or in the same way, like, oh, I'm going hyper fragile. So my first three picks are running backs and then I'm not taking one. And I believe we had this conversation on chip chasing in the beginning of the summer too. And it kind of like opened up my mind to, you can achieve these structural goals by not necessarily like coloring right within the lines. And so we talked about, you know, grabbing your anchor RB as your third or fourth round pick, you know, with an exploitable ADP value, say like DeAndre Swift this past season. And so that really is what um, became intellectually interesting and super fun for me with drafting is like, how can I accomplish my structural goals by not doing it, you know, so um, by the book. And I think that to me is really where, these strategies and edges can still be found because it's just naturally easier for people to be like, I'm doing robust RB. So I'm just going to draft my four running backs to start. It just makes it easier to kind of think through how people want to draft, where if you can be dynamic and understand what those structures are actually doing for you, um, I think you're able to zig and zag a little bit more and be more exploitative as far as, Hey, this value is here. Like I'm not passing on this because I locked myself into some structure. So that's a lot about what I'm thinking about heading into the 2022 best ball season. Yeah. That's a thing that I've drafted with a lot of people is like, you're, you might be my favorite person to draft with 
from the perspective that I think you have just an incredible grasp on structure. And and you, you mentioned something that I think everyone should have in mind, which is this idea of having multiple structures and understanding how to play them. And so you can still be flexible. Like when we talk about structure, when we talk about zero RB and things like that on the show, we're not saying you have to pick that before the draft. In fact, you shouldn't. You need to have multiple ways to play so the draft can still fall to you, but you you know how to then optimize intelligently to what the draft gives you. You do that as well as anyone I know, and I love drafting with you for that reason. You're always like, yeah, this is a guy we can take, or this is a move we maybe don't want to take here. Um, and that actually gets to the next question, which is one of my favorite things about you as well. Um, you're always evolving. You're always growing. I mean, I think you were talking about like the Oregon Trail days. Like back in the day, you were doing a lot more comedy stuff. People maybe didn't take you as seriously from a strict uh, analysis perspective. But I think part of that, I don't want to be offensive to anything back then, but like, I think you've grown a ton since then as an analyst as well. Like you're always learning. You do a ton of different shows with a ton of different people. You pull things from different concepts. Your show with Brick, the fantastic DFS player. I've seen you pull those concepts concepts and help me understand other concepts in, that don't even relate to DFS necessarily. So like, I, that's one of the things I love about you is how you're always constantly growing and things. How would you say your best ball strategies have evolved over these last like three or four years as best balls continue to blow blow up. Well, yeah. And I, I appreciate that. Like I, I like the idea of, you know, being, uh, you know, viewed as versatile and being able to kind of, you know, have fun, but also make sure that we're, you know, passing along, you know, uh, good strategies to people who are, you know, putting their hard earned money into these contests. But honestly, I, I feel extremely, fortunate um i saw someone in one of my shows the other night they're like well peter has access to top pros and i was like i do and that's that's one of the things that have been so you know beneficial to me like you mentioned um getting to work with brian hooper who's the top a top dfs player i've learned so much from him doing our dfs lineups with mike leone our uh mutual friend i've learned so much about small field gpp strategy from him obviously reading sean over the years gretch talking with you in past about prospects, about understanding, you know, production in the season and how we can, you know, uh, change on a dime with our waiver strategy. So I, I like to think of myself as a sponge. And if I have one good skill, it's probably I think I know who to tail. And I know who the smart people are who have the domain expertise and who are actually putting in the work researching. And then I kind of come along and just as a grab bag, you know, pick the ideas I like, test them out and, and see what works for me. I think that there's even more to that to it than that, but that's definitely a very, very good way to be. Pete, when you're looking at these best ball teams, the other part of the drafting that people always want us to focus on, and I think that we should focus on beyond structures, is this player selection element. And you know, sometimes when you get the just pick players, people, you know, they're obviously thinking about it incorrectly, but there also is some real value to that, depending on the nuance. And as I kind of think about player selection, I think it takes this sort of unique blend of courage and humility. We've got to be able to admit how little we know, but then try and use that to our advantage. How do you think about player selection when you know, you're on the clock with all of these different drafters and there are two or three guys? What's the key to doing it well? And you know, does player selection and just picking players, does that come into it for you as well? Yeah, this is another thing where I've I feel like I've had some tough lessons over the years with both, you know, maybe two years ago, my best ball portfolio, you know, three years ago, two years ago with our high stakes, you know, FFPC portfolio, where um we might have been identifying the the right 
types of players, but then getting too narrow minded within that cohort. And so an example, uh, Pat probably hates whenever I bring it up was the year where it was the Jalen Rager and Justin Jefferson year. And we were so high on Jalen Rager and it wasn't that we disliked you know, Justin Jefferson, it was just, we got blinders and Jalen Rager was slightly cheaper than Justin Jefferson. So we ended up extremely overweight Rager and extremely underweight Jefferson. Yet if you would have asked either of us, like what are the chances Jefferson outscores Rager or vice versa, even cost adjusted, we would have probably said, oh, it's, it's a coin flip. Like we'd probably in a perfect world, like to be equally exposed to these guys at their prices. And yet we weren't. And that's kind of a tough thing where I feel like, you know, thanks to all of the great prospect work you guys have done over at Rotoviz, that we do really have a good grasp on the, the types of players we should be taking in these drafts and yet not falling in love with specific versions of those players, I think is a really valuable lesson I've learned. And I would say sometimes I think I might've even swung too far to the player selection, like agnostic side where people I think wish I had more player takes. Like we're constantly in the chat, you know, on ship chasing drafting last night, we're talking about a group of running backs at the end of the draft. And I throw out like five or six names and they all look to me as just like, 6% probability of hitting. That's like all I see next to their names, but people have such these strong takes. Oh, this guy's better than this guy. And it's like, maybe you know something I don't know, but generally players drafted in this range are going to hit at this clip and based on the needs of our team, whether we need high floor through a pass catching running back, maybe we want a high upside handcuff. I feel like I like mixing up my textures within those ADP grouping. So I think I've definitely shifted to more of like a Zen portfolio approach and making sure I'm not overconfident in my specific player takes because I, I don't think I'm personally really good at that part of fantasy. Just so we can have a, a player take though uh, for the listeners really quick and we can kind of hold you this later. Uh, yes. Who did you guys end up selecting? So who are, yeah, so we were debating, it was a classic kind of ship chasing draft where the wide receivers went early and there was that stretch probably been from when we took yeah. Andre Stevenson in round 10, where the running backs were just the best pick. We took McKinnon before that. We didn't, when we were looking at these four guys, we didn't take Trey Sermon. Who did we take? Yes, we took, I could pull it out because I sent Leone the link here. So we took uh, Ramondre Stevenson in the 10th, McKinnon in the 13th, Miles Gaskin in the 16th. And in this draft, Sean, we had taken... Saquon and Aaron Jones at basically the three, four turn, because those guys had fallen a, a really good bit. Yeah. Gaskin, none of us were really stoked about, but it, he's probably going to lose his job. He did not have a great 2021, but in the 16th round, we felt like was a fine, was a fine option for, for that roster alongside who are the other guys we were looking at. If you're looking at that board, it was Sermon. Sermon Gus Edwards, I thought was really a nice value in the 16th. McKissick was there. Hines was there. Um, I thought a pretty juicy range for zero RB targets. Like a lot of those names were going in the 10th to 12th round of drafts at the end of last year. And I don't necessarily think like what's changed for Naheem Hines. Like people will say, well, obviously Jonathan Taylor exploded, but I think we all agree he can coexist and produced in that offense. Um, and so now you're getting, you know, what a five round discount on where he was going last year. Yeah. One of the things you were just talking about sort of being somewhat player agnostic, I think I've noticed in, you, you mentioned some of our, conversations with our mutual friend Leone. you guys talk a lot more about dfs than i get involved in it because you guys are much sharper than me at it but one of the things that i've noticed number one is to be successful at dfs you have to be willing to play players that essentially other people don't necessarily want to play because a lot of times it comes down to it comes down to ownership right and, and and there's guys that are really good values and they uh or they project as good values but 
at good price points and things, but people don't necessarily want to play them for one of a, a variety of potential narrative reasons. Um, and I've seen you with some of the best lineups that you've built being willing sort of to go to some of these less sexy names at certain times. So essentially, and, and you sort of talked about this as well with your zero RB approach where you guys took Adams and there's definitely an interplay here that, that comes back over to best ball. But you guys took Adams almost intentionally to build a different structure that had a Devontae Adams roster. And that ended up paying off very, very well because you had this uh, you know, different structure with the Chase team and Adams. There's probably other Chase Adams teams, but certainly it, it um, was an interesting way to uh, apply that to, to best ball. How, like, talk through how you look at things like that, this concept of differentiation, kind of a contrarian approach to roster building and how, you know, it, as it relates to DFS, maybe how you look at like projections and ownership and sort of th this idea of like being somewhat player agnostic at times. Yeah, I think with DFS and there are, you know, a lot of similarities and, you know, it feels more comfy to draft or, or to roster in DFS, a popular play. You know, we call that the chalk in DFS where everyone's talking about this guy. He projects well as a points per dollar play. It feels comfy. Like no one's going to tell you that's a bad play. And yet um, how we win or as Dinkmeyer, Drew Dinkmeyer likes to say, what do we win when we win? Rostering those guys isn't the path of least resistance. And so I, again, when you start to think about things over a longer time horizon, yes, it might make you feel uncomfortable on a each week making that play. But over the long term, if your goal is to get first place in one of these tournaments, you want to be uncomfortable over and over and over again, because the one time you are right in the field is off that you're going to get paid off in a big way. And I think the way that applies to best ball and another trap I fell into is I fall in love with certain guys. I know the 49ers were a blind spot for me last year. I was the guy wasn't listening to you guys enough saying we should be scooping Devo Samuel later. And I was chasing Brandon Ayuk steam into the mid fourth. And I was chasing Trey Lance steam into the early 10th after, you know, he started the season in the 13th and Ayuk started the season in the early six. So that was one of those things where it feels comfy, right? To draft those guys. It's like, everyone's excited about these profiles. They look like they could be fantasy superstars yet is all of that upside and what you win when you win is that baked out at those new costs. And so that's where I think it's such a good lesson. And when you do so many of these drafts where you build so many DFS rosters over and over, you get used to feeling uncomfortable. And so a lot of times now when I'm on the clock in my best ball drafts, I'm like, I almost say to myself, you do not want to make this pick. It makes you feel uncomfortable, but you know what? We're, we're going to make this pick right here because there's only so many times in a row you can draft Sky more. <laughs> well, Pete, I, I did want to ask you about traps. So that gives us a, a very nice segue into that. One of the great advantages of being so active in best ball, and then you and Ben obviously spend a lot of time with Pat, who is a, a fantastic dynasty mind. And so you guys are looking at prospects. You guys are on the rookies who are going to rise in these drafts and kind of get more expensive as the years as the year goes along, obviously you're doing these dynasty rookie drafts. So you're familiar with those types of players. And so you've drafted a lot of teams once you kind of get to redraft season. Now there are some huge advantages to that. Obviously, are there traps to it? We're doing a lot of the early drafts, the spring, the summer drafts uh, create some issues for you in the fall. Yeah. 
I mean, that it, it is really a double-edged sword because, you know, the benefit is you know these draft rooms inside and out. You know the general bands and pockets of where players are going to go. It even, like, frees you up to make almost individual reads on your opponents. Like, if you're just doing your first draft of the year, you're kind of just like, oh, my God, I need – there's so much going on right now. I'm just worried about myself. Once you know the ADPs inside and out, you can be like, all right, Team 3 has done this. I can tell he's probably due for a quarterback here. And you can even kind of react and add that into your strategy and so that's really beneficial when i know toward the end of the year where i can just feel the draft rooms and, and gretch has probably heard me say on on ship jay like we probably should take a wide receiver here because we're going to get squeezed out if if we don't so that's the advantage the disadvantage like you said is you become so comfortable in certain structures in certain pockets of players that you just keep doing the same thing over and over again and that's why that epiphany you know i kind of had last summer when we were having those talks about you know um making the structures more malleable to kind of what's happening on in drafts was big for me. And, you know, Eric was really good at this too, of pushing you outside of your comfort zone. And I think in the first few rounds is the perfect spot to overly diversify and to push outside of your structure because like ultimately what is the difference of those top 25 players? Like, sure, you could look at really good projections and maybe there's, you know, a 40 to 50 point gap between, you know, 101 and, you know, player 25. But ultimately in the grand scheme of like a breakout season, that's negligible. So mixing up those combinations, knowing a lot of people aren't going to have Devontae Adams with the type of players that are going at the two, three turn in that specific example, I thought was a way to kind of throw the cold water on my face and like, don't just get comfortable doing the exact same thing over and over um, with these drafts. Correct me if I'm wrong, but part of what you're saying there is, especially like what the projection point is like, a lot of the guys at the top, and we obviously have some favorites. There are some running backs specifically that we're not necessarily going to take a whole lot of, but they're going to have the ability in their range to have a top 10th percentile outcome of, of their range that laps the field, you know, and, and essentially all of those guys are going there because they have that, that upside. And maybe some of them are able to do it at a little bit of a higher clip than others or what have you. But like when you take Adams there, what you're really saying is like, Adams has a great year. He's going to be worth this pick, right? Right. And you know, like what Cooper cup, if, if you could go and redraft the season, right. Everyone would have taken Cooper cup one Oh one, right? Like if we knew the points, that's where he would have gone yet taking Cooper cup, which, you know, obviously based on his ADP, none of us saw a one Oh one season in his range of outcomes, but that's the thesis to drafting Devonte Adams there, right? Is that he has that Cooper cup year and you look back and say, yeah, had I known I would have taken him one Oh one. So then all of a sudden, when you back out that exercise, taking him at one Oh three doesn't seem that crazy. And we could obviously get into the conversation of, you know, uh, these guys being not only higher, uh, upside, but even much safer picks, uh, than a lot of those running backs too. But, um, I do think, um, having an imagination with those early picks, knowing you're not going to sacrifice a bunch. Like when I'm chasing Brandon, Ayuk into the fourth round, the opportunity cost there is pretty good. There's a lot of good players I'm passing up on to make a speculative ad with a volatile situation and a lot of unknowns with a player. But when you're shuffling around the top 25 picks, you're not sacrificing that much. Pete, you had mentioned these sort of unique builds, and then you also had mentioned earlier being uncomfortable. I keep thinking back to some of your teams just in general, and then specifically this team that, that did so well. It's so dynamic in the back half. Do you feel like you get sort of more 
and have more dynamism as a drafter if you're in the situation where you've got a unique build and you've got an uncomfortable build that then you're sort of alive and really figuring out all of the different ways you can make that work late in the draft or do you feel like and i'm guessing that to an extent it's both and obviously in retrospect you know you, you go back and look at it and say well in this draft i did this and this draft you know was unsuccessful or, or do you find the situation that then you feel like you're always chasing and sometimes then it sort of snowballs where a lot of the picks not necessarily are reaches but you feel under pressure and it leads to mistakes yeah i mean there's the i feel like the benefits of being unique or going against the grain specifically in these best ball tournaments, the benefits compound because one of the things that was awesome for this roster when we went into the best ball finals is we had a super unique team. Like all of the high win rate players that were on most of the finalists, you know, across any tournament, you know, it was your Jonathan Taylor, your Cooper Cup, your Debo Samuel, your Mark Andrews. Like those guys were all on a ton of teams. We didn't have one single one of those players. So from a DFS perspective like if you were looking at that as a one-week tournament which it was by the time you get to week 17 you're like you're licking your chops because not only you're not sacrificing that many projected points on a given week versus their lineup but on top of it you're completely unique so any of those guys cratering having a subpar performance is just massive to your win equity so not only when you draft the team are you going against the grain and maybe getting wide receiver values why everyone chase running backs but you're also getting a uniqueness element within the tournaments. And I think that's massive. And I know you guys with the team you had with uh column in the um, FFPC best ball finals. I know Leone, I think was the only team that had George Kittle and there was the rest were Mark Andrews. And he was very excited about that as well from a unique perspective. So I think that's another benefit to getting a little funky is if you can sneak a team through, uh, I think your win equity is going to be much, much higher. This I, I kind of have a follow up question for both of you because Sean, you kind of hit on this with these uncomfortable builds, and you're very good at this as well. But um, we'll we'll start with with you, Pete. But as you relate this to DFS, the, one of the big things I've learned from you and Leone in, in these conversations is this idea that like building a contrarian DFS lineup. I think the sort of the mistake you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but sort of the mistake a lot of people make is they pick a couple of projected low owned players and still play some chalk. And you guys, I think, are so good at understanding um, and executing builds where basically your whole lineup is like sub 10% players sometimes. Some of the teams that, that Leone is used to in the Thunderdome, and I know some of your very successful teams, have essentially been all unique plays. And it was kind of a, what Sean touched on in his question where he was talking about you have all these various outs. You are also just talking about it in relation to the final round of these massive best ball tournaments. But there's only so many ways we can get unique in a snake draft. So the question I was going to have is, how do we get to this point where we're not just creating one or two leverage points, but is there strategies that you've thought through that we can do in a snake draft that can can allow us to be, to have several different levers to pull, as you like to say in a lot of our conversations, several different leverage points and leverage to pull that maybe even if one doesn't hit, two or three other ones could hit. And we don't even have to be perfect necessarily because we're so different across our entire lineup. Yeah, no, it, it is a lot harder because in and you saw because uh Gretch, you were in our, our DFS chats where uh the three of us would almost be having this competition where it was like who can get the most projected points into their DFS lineup with the least amount of ownership? 
And a lot of times, I mean, it's like this euphoric moment when you're like, I'm only 15 points off the optimal lineup and I have a hundred less percentage points of ownership. And it, looking through that lens, it's like, well, of course I would take this path um, if I'm not sacrificing that many projected points and most of the field isn't playing this. So I feel like we're able to do that to an extent with these structures, but not so much. And I do think ultimately um, it's really hard to do in just one single draft, but I do think it's easier over a large portfolio of drafts to kind of pull those levers more. And, you know, one thing I want to be better on this year is I noticed, you know, when I was rounding out my stacks last year in drafts, I was often going to the same wide receiver three or four. All right. I'm taking Olamide uh, Zacchaeus because he's the last remaining Falcons guy, which pushed me off of not having as much Cordell Patterson as I should. Or it's like, I'm taking too much Denzel Mims again and not enough Keelan Cole. And again, I think that idea of that humility-based approach, and you, obviously you need to have a really good understanding of these depth charts and, and prospect profiles to pull this off, but not being comfortable and willing to kind of say, yes, this is what's likely to happen, but what if this doesn't happen? What are the other realistic outcomes? And so I do think that's a, a lever to pull to is just moving past the ADP. And I think if we talk about it again, how it's kind of negligible for the first 25 picks, I think you could also say that for the last, you know, 50 to 60 picks of a draft, like the probability rates for those guys aren't that different. And yet still we naturally get anchored to those ADPs and feel comfy picking within those ADPs. And it's like, you can throw that out. Like if you take a guy three rounds ahead of his ADP in the 17th round or whatever, like that, that's not going to sink your team, but it might put you on a much more unique build. Yeah. That's really interesting how you can do that in those final rounds. Sean, do you, did you have any other additional thoughts? I mean, I, I like your other point as well, Pete, about across the entire portfolio of finding ways to do that in snake drafts. To, to more closely mirror what you, you're able to do in like a DFS contest. Did, Sean, did you have any other thoughts that you that you were thinking about, about ways in? Because, I, I mean, you're someone else who, if for anyone who hasn't drafted with Sean, it could get very uncomfortable very quick. Like, you're like, what are you thinking sometimes? Yeah, I was just kind of thinking through what, what Pete was saying there. Just great stuff, obviously. I, one of the things that I'd like to do, and I think that people miss a little bit about zero RB, and they focus so much on the zero RB element of it, as opposed to actually what you're accomplishing with your overall structure. And then especially if you're getting a bunch of wide range of outcome players, but at a decent price. I mean, the thing that, that Pete talked about where, you know, once Brandon Ayuk gets into that range where, yeah, I mean, his, his, he's got a wide range of outcomes, but unfortunately you're paying for one of the ones that it, it is very positive and, and really you want the guys to be priced the opposite direction, but it, if you're taking a lot of those guys within this type of structure, I think people can miss what you're doing, which I think is to create a team where you actually don't have to have that many things go right to have a super team. And when they do go right, then your team actually is going to be one of the best teams where I think a lot of drafters get into a safer mindset or a value mindset, or a, you know, let's make sure I do get some you know, diversity within my portfolio mindset and miss the fact that that particular team that they're drafting, even if they're right, their team isn't necessarily going to be that good. And I mean, that's a real problem. Now, it, it doesn't mean the team's going to be bad, but we are trying to get into these top couple of spots. We're trying to put together a team 
that especially if you're trying to do kind of both things, which is sort of fun about how so many of these leagues and tournaments work now, where you're trying to get through your individual league and then make a run at kind of the big picture, the big tournament, you know, you have to have those things going for you. And so I think that that's one of the elements that if you look at why some of the structures work and why some of these things that seem uncomfortable work, there's that element to them. Just to piggyback on that, that, that goes right back to Pete's team that he described where Pete, you pointed out so eloquently that the running backs all mesh together so well. And that was an amazing thing to have happen. And even like, I don't even know when you were running through, if you mentioned Alexander Madison, but he got you guys some early points when Dalvin cook missed some games. Like there were so many elements of that where throughout the year, you could, you could hear those players and be like that, that played out perfectly for you. You don't know what's going to happen in advance. And a lot of people will listen to that and go, yeah, well, if you pick the perfect set of running backs, then everything works out great. But to Sean's point, you're trying to, limit the number of things you need to get right, which is something that also comes up in all of the CFS conversations. Essentially, that was the thing you needed to get right and have Jamar Chase because you didn't hit on your first three receivers. You didn't hit on these other things, but you had everything else structurally in place that when the running backs hit and when when you had Jamar Chase, you, you finished top 10. Right, and that that's another kind of parallel to DFS, right? Is, you know, sometimes people think, oh, to be unique, I have to play this super off the wall, third string tight end at 0.02%, you know, and, and that's how, that's how I get my edge. If they get the touchdown, it's like, well, no, sometimes in the phrase we use is flipping the build. You could say, you know, zero RB is flipping the build. You know, if everyone's paying up for Dalvin cook and Jonathan Taylor in a DFS week, well, maybe you go cheap at running back and you load up on the high price wide receivers because the salary cap dynamics also mean if people are rat draft, uh, drafting, you know, or rostering Jonathan Taylor and Dalvin cook, they're not also getting up to Devonte Adams and Tyree Kill, and that's a lever that you can pull structurally in that roster that doesn't even involve getting off the beaten path, doesn't even involve sacrificing that many projected points. So I do think that was, I mean, you can look at that team Eric and I drafted, like you said, like, yeah, Jamar Chase was awesome, but like no one, we didn't have How much better could that winners. team have been? I mean, that team could have been so much better. What if Mostert stays healthy? That's a guy we've talked about, could have been phenomenal in the Elijah Mitchell role. But also, what if you did have, Mark Andrews or Cooper Cup or Debo Samuel on that roster. There's so that team could have been so much better, which is so yeah. crazy because it finished top 10. Yeah. And even looking at our quarterback and tight end pairings, we had Dak Prescott and Mac Jones. I mean, Dak was fine, you know, like he didn't set the world on fire. And then our tight ends, we had Kyle Pitts and Hunter Henry. Again, we didn't get the breakout season we wanted from Pitts. You know, Henry pitched in some touchdowns here and there, but it, that that team was carried by structural. Uh, drafting principles and being unique. That's all it had going for it. Um, and, and then Jamar Chase, that, that, that's all you need. <laughs> We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pete, we've talked about this a little bit, and obviously the the wide number of people that you've drafted with. But one of the things that you know you and I have kind of messaged about a little bit in the past is this idea of drafting with some other people, and it gives you the freedom to do some other things. You know, I kind of think about my drafts, and probably my preference as a drafter would be about forty five percent zero RB, forty percent modified zero RB, and we throw that out there because people love to hear that, and then fifteen percent hyper fragile and mixing in some other little things if you get these great values but when i go on a show or i I do our own shows you know people are very disappointed if it's not hardcore zero rb right what have you gotten to experience and to learn by drafting with some people who really do it differently than you do yeah that's such a good point because i've you know, seeing the extremes of that, like one example, uh, you know, this year we did, um, like with the ship chasing community, we did drafts with a lot of those guys. And a lot of times, you know, they're coming on stream to draft with us and they want to play the hits. They want, uh, you know, Pat and I and Gretch loading up with George Kittle and every draft of the second round, they want George Kittle on, on their teams. And, and, you know, Oh, we're loading up on Steph Diggs here. And, and so now all of a sudden we have so many teams where we're extremely overweight on these guys. It doesn't actually reflect our confidence in them hitting relative to other players around them, but it's just like, these are our guys. These are fun guys. So that's an interesting thing from a portfolio perspective, how to balance that. But yeah, to your point, like some of our best teams, Gretch knows, cause back to back years, we, some of our best teams have been drafted with crack rock. Uh, a high stakes veteran. And he thinks so different than us and approaches it so different. And sometimes this like blending of how we think about structure and player archetypes with kind of his uh, brain and how he views it, like creates these really unique mashups where it comes together in a really cool way. Um, and the same thing I, I draft on uh splash play, a show I do on my channel with Chris Spags. And um, he thinks differently about a lot of these guys and he'll, float a player that I never would consider. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, that's completely fine. Like there's no reason that player can't enjoy this team. So both from a structure perspective, crack rock getting us on, you know, starting drafts with a, a couple running backs or spags getting me on a player I wouldn't have otherwise considered. Like it, I honestly, it, it feels good. It's, it's good to get pushed out of your comfort zone and realize like I am not as confident as I think I am when I'm by myself clicking the button on these players. Pete, I did want to ask you too, then in terms of how, and this follows on along with that, you know, early drafts to late drafts, you do so much best ball content and are so good at it, but then you guys obviously dominate with all of these ship chasing drafts. What are the big things that people need to know in terms of the difference between best ball and redraft? Because obviously there's a different dynamic. One of the things that's interesting is that zero RB works in both, but it works for different reasons. And some of those reasons, obviously you can then extrapolate out into other things that you want to do with the structure of your roster how do you use those things to make yourself better at both as opposed to you know maybe making mistakes because you're thinking of it as all one tournament or all one format 
Yeah, it's tough. It is much easier with best ball, right? Just because you can think of it from a portfolio perspective. It's easier to not, you know, get so emotionally invested in any one single pick because, you know, this is just one draft. It's a drop in the bucket of what I'm trying to accomplish where sometimes you do these high stakes teams and it's like, all right, there's only one draft we're going to do this year with Gretsch, Pat and Crack Rock and we want to make it really good. And sometimes it's hard to to be patient and let the drafts come to you when it's that draft for that year and you only get one crack at it. So I do find it difficult from that perspective, but it's also nice too, to be able to, to lean into kind of the benefits of a specific format and know that, Hey, we do have more of a safety net with running back in a managed league in a way we wouldn't with, um, uh, with best ball and same with quarterbacks. I know we've been really aggressive with some of our late round quarterback swings and knowing like, yeah, it sucks. We missed on Trey Lance. It sucks. We missed on Justin Fields, but you know, we picked up Derek Carr on the waiver wire and we're doing fine. So I think it's fun to kind of take advantage of, you know, format specifics and, and really lean into, to how those are different. And in general too, I just love the push and pull of how all these formats now blend together. Like even coming out of playoff fantasy best ball into um, dynasty season and then how that informs our summer best ball drafting and then how that informs our season long and then that informs DFS. Like it all is this kind of one cohesive unit. And I think you can really apply things um, across those formats in a way that just makes you a better player uh, across all of them. Who are your favorite quarterbacks in the best ball right now? Because one of the things you just mentioned, quarterback is different, and you got to get those guys in the QB window to have the firepower in best ball. And so that's a position where you can end up actually being on some very different players in the two formats. Yeah, I've been telling uh, Gretch and Karain, like one of my leaks, you know, I've done, we've done a handful of FFPC drafts. I've done a handful of the underdog ones, and I haven't been uh, getting a lot of elite quarterbacks and not necessarily by by choice. They've just been going uh, much earlier than the elite quarterbacks were going at the end of draft season. So I've caught myself uh, ending up with a lot of three QB builds waiting Um and trying to piece it together there. So just by my current portfolio, I would say some of my favorite quarterbacks is kind of that Jalen Hurts, Russell Wilson, uh, Aaron Rodgers tier. And kind of a tier I would say is like the has elite upside, but there's some uncertainty tier there where I feel like where the, you know, the Kyler's in the, you know, Lamar Jackson's going is, is pretty fair um, for what, you could expect for them. Uh, so yeah, I've been trying to kind of scoop the values on those guys. And then, um, yeah, I, I think I've just been mixing and matching a lot of the cheap guys late last night. We, we took Davis mills and then re regretted it immediately. Cause we were like, why aren't we taking a stab on one of these, you know, rookie quarterbacks like Malik Willis, who has a pretty exciting profile. So yeah, I don't have a super like clear vision on my, on my quarterback strategy right now, but I would say, I'd say Russell Wilson is a guy that I think we're getting a pretty good discount on relative to what we know he can do. Also, let me, let me turn the tables on you guys. Cause I've done a lot of talking and I want to hear like a hot, uh, a hot topic of conversation on Twitter this past week with best ball has been around diversification and this idea of like having a portfolio, should you be spreading your exposures around? Is that your Beth? best path to winning a tournament, or if you have a, a super big conviction on a singular player, 
like being extremely overweight, 60, 70% of that guy, is that an edge you want to push? And I'm kind of curious. Um, I know you guys don't, don't get in the Twitter battles like I do, but I'm curious where, uh, I don't get in them either, I should say, but I'm curious what you guys think about diversification across a, a large portfolio. And if you think that gives you a big edge or not. Well, I, I think I can answer for Sean. I think I'm less extreme than Sean, but why don't you go ahead, Sean? I, I like to take my guys. And when I'm right, and I do feel like, and you mentioned the situation with Jefferson and Rager, and I would definitely say that kind of thing will happen. And when it does, you you do regret that. And yet at the same time, I do feel like there are a lot of mispriced players in these key rounds. And I just want as much of them as I can, because even if that leads to occasional down years, the up years are so big and the chances to win the big tournaments are so much greater when I have a lot of different top players, like you mentioned earlier, with those guys as opposed to a variety of top players and then diversified off of these guys that I really think are going to be the league winners. And so again, it's this kind of, you know, it seems strange to say within the context of humility based drafting, but I'm trying to put a lot in there to protect me against when LaVisca Chenault doesn't do anything for two years in a row. Right. But even with that, I feel like these teams are going to come through. I don't want to be on the guys that I think just, really aren't going to help. And and even sometimes if that's a Cooper Cup, like I didn't have a lot of Cooper Cup last year, but it, it still works because you're not getting caught with a lot of people that you don't want. You know, you're not getting caught with a lot of the Allen Robinsons and that kind of thing. And so just being able to take those players out, I think really helps your overall win rate. You definitely have to have the medal for it. I, I've seen some of the conversations on Twitter and I've seen some of the takes that are saying that we're sort of heading towards a player agnostic world generally where like we shouldn't even be considering the players necessarily and we should be doing everything through structure and diversification and i think that's faulty i mean i think you can look at someone like sean and and how good he is at identifying players and certain profiles that you should hit that a big reason for your success sean is is related to player takes i mean it's very much related to that and one of the ways you put it to me it's helped me understand it that has changed the way that i've played over the last several years is that a, a better example than chenault or KJ Hamler, who we had on all of our teams together this year, or uh, you know Jerry Judy was a guy we we were targeting a lot and didn't really work out just because of injury. Is Debo Samuel, who we also had on every single team. The fact that we didn't have a lot of Cooper Cup or KJ Hamler didn't hit, or all those other guys didn't hit. The fact that we did have Debo Samuel on all those rosters fixed that problem. Um, so, like I said, you do have to kind of have the medal for it. If you miss on everything, you're going to be in a tough spot, right? And so I, I wouldn't say it's for everyone, but. One of the ways you put it to me, what I was what I was trying to get to was this idea that you don't want to have the right configuration of players like you kind of hit on in maybe the first five rounds or some other key players that maybe weren't the the league winning types, but then not have Debo Samuel on that roster. And so it's it, it, I think it actually is humility based in the sense that, you know, and we all I think know you're not going to get production from all of your picks in your draft. I think there's a lot of people who think like there's this concept in, in best ball drafting. You have to think as if you're right draft as if you're right. I think that makes a lot of sense in context, but we just talked about your team that finished top 10. I had Raheem Mostert on a zero RB team. Raheem Mostert would have really helped that team if he stayed healthy. 
you didn't have to draft that team as if Raheem Mostert was going to be healthy necessarily, right? I mean, you part of the reason you won was you did actually continue to build out running back depth, even when Mostert got hurt, who was probably one of your highest drafted running backs on that roster. The you had enough other options to fill that in. It didn't sink you. There's this humility element where you can win in fantasy where a third of your roster does nothing for you. Even in maybe not so much in best ball, but I think even in best ball, Sean, your team in the finals of the FFPC had several players that were dead by the final round. If I, if I'm not mistaken, um, had some guys, not several, but a couple to get all the way that far. You have to be pretty, you know, pretty fortunate with, with health and things. We had more wide receivers dead than we would ever would have wanted. That's right. More receivers, especially. And you, you had more dead than anyone else in that contest is I guess probably the better way to put it. There was 12 people in the final round. You and I did some looking at the rosters and talking through it, maybe more off the show than on the show. And it was like, man, how are you guys here with the like three players you have dead when you look at these other rosters who are like actually stayed perfectly healthy somehow, for, you know, their whole roster. But the reality, I mean, so maybe in these big, big basketball tournaments, you do have to stay pretty healthy. The reality, especially I think for seasonal leagues, is you have to recognize you're going to have uh, an amount of, of, of like just like loss on your roster. Like there's a certain amount of that's going to be baked in. People think you have to be more healthy and more productive and have no busts and no misses, then I think you actually have to, if you're able to execute the other elements of it. So in that way, I think it is somewhat sort of humility based where as Sean kind of said, when we have these guys like, like KJ Hamler who don't do anything at the back of all of our teams and you know, the seasonal leagues, we can add new guys and the best ball leagues. We can't, but that's not the only guy that we're, you know, lever trying to leverage or, or what have you. And so if there's like a Debo or somebody on there, the, the key is, can you get Debo with the four or five other really big hits and maybe the first five rounds and get that right configuration that you have this core that, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess like it gets to that point in fantasy where like you want this core, right? You want this core of five players or eight I, or 10. I think what makes the diversification argument so hard for me is I would like to take some big stands um, for say uh, weeks one through 14 the regular season, because all those points, the way these best ball tournaments are structured are counting, you know, toward that. And can you advance out of that group over a 14 week span? And I think over 14 weeks, it's uh, more important to, to kind of be overweight on those values and on your specific player targets. But then we all know how much randomness occurs on a given week and you see how top heavy these prizes are and how you really need things to go extremely right like 95th to 99th percentile outcome in that given week and so if you have you know say 80% KJ Hamler like he could just be the league winner of all week winners for you during the season but then just get blanketed for a couple playoff weeks and wipe out a, a lot of your teams. Obviously, the cost of where you drafted him would factor into that. So that's where I struggle, where it's like, I'd like to be overweight for the regular season, and then I'd love to like disperse and randomize it for those individual weeks, just knowing like it's going to be very hard for me to hit the parlay of this exact same cohort all going off together in the money weeks. I think that ADP has gotten so much tighter over the last three or four years. And part of that even is people understanding structure, which affects the individual player evaluations. And so those are tighter. And yet at the same time, if you're drafting and you don't feel like every round has a couple of really big values that you are hoping to get to, then it's probably not very fun. And I, I think you're probably not going to do as well as you need to do. You need to have some of those guys. Pete, we have to let you go, but I did want to bring up, at least mention, see if you had any thoughts on, 
Uh, a couple of years ago, we asked for some hot takes on Rotoviz overtime. And the one that you gave us for rookie drafts was so fun that Colin and I play that every couple of months. Uh, where are you now on these rookie drafts and where the value is? And do you have a, a hot take to kind of finish us out there? Yeah, I know. I'm, uh, you know, I, I talk about tailing the right people. I, I was picking uh, Karain's brain last night. I was saying, hey, where are the tear gaps in these uh, in these dynasty drafts? Um, I think one of the early takes I've had, and I was kind of fleshing it out on the show last night is, you know, the pendulum is now kind of swung on these quarterbacks as, hard, as far as how we're viewing them in Superflex. We're coming off of a super hyped class that kind of disappointed. And a lot of those guys were drafted pretty high. Um, whereas this year, I feel like the enthusiasm around, you know, these guys landing spots, uh, you know, aside, I feel like there's going to be a ton of value with these guys in the back of the first and early second round of these rookie drafts. And I'm excited to dig in more to it. I was listening to your guys' show with uh, Travis May, and I was getting really excited about kind of some of his uh, advanced metrics and how he was kind of manipulating those to make them more predictive. And um, yeah, I guess my hot take now is, um, actually, I don't even know if I like this hot take, but it has to be a hot take. Let's say that this draft class for quarterbacks will end up um, being better than last year's. Um, and, and right from the from the gun as well. Maybe we get two, three of these rookie quarterbacks who are contributing to our fantasy rosters in a meaningful way uh, right out of the gate. And that's a, that's a subtweet of Trey Lance. I'm, I'm looking at you when I'm saying uh, <laughs> these guys are going to contribute. <laughs> Still subtweet Justin Fields, please spare me. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's so funny with the Trey Lance stuff too, right? Because I mean, his AP is already getting frothy. People are drafting him very aggressive. Like right after Kyler Murray goes off the board, like people are lining up to draft Trey Lance. Then we have Adam Schefter, you know, just yesterday saying, well, not so fast. They might not trade Jimmy Garoppolo. They're still in win now mode. Trey Lance isn't quite ready. It's like, good God, if we're doing this again with Trey Lance, I don't think I'm ever going to recover. You got to get out there and, and get your Jordan love for Trey Lance trades in while they're still uh, even value, right? There you go. There you go. I do have Jordan Love kicking around on a couple taxi squads. <laughs> well, Pete, that was awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it, it was the perfect way to start. We haven't had a guest in the in a while. We wanted you to be the person that started out 2022 for us. It was absolutely perfect. Tell people some of the many things that you're doing. Where should they be looking for you? How can they get more Peter Overs that content? Yeah, I think for uh, for this audience, I think you guys would all enjoy uh, Ship Chasing, a show I do with Gretch and Pat Crane on Wednesday nights. Uh, we have a YouTube feed and also the audio goes up. And yeah, right now we've just been doing a lot of drafting. And I think all three of us are kind of, you know, figuring out how we feel about things early on. Um, we're willing to admit when we make mistakes like last night, we're like, yeah, we just forgot about the rookie quarterbacks. I don't know what to tell you guys. We forgot about them. So if you want to watch us kind of, you know, generate uh, our viewpoints on on draft season in real time. You can uh, tune over uh, to ship chasing, and then yeah, I'm going to be going on vacation for a little bit, beginning of March, and then when I come back, I'm excited to do kind of more regular best ball drafts on my YouTube channel uh, as well, and and kind of get things uh, up and running there. So yeah, uh, it's crazy. It feels like every single year we get into best ball season early and earlier, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, it's so much fun, and uh, excited to dive in more. Well, that will do it for today's episode of Stealing Bananas, a very special episode again with Peter Overzet. So glad to have him on the show. I'm Sean Siegel with me. As always, isn't Grant Ben Gretsch, whom you can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. Make sure you sign up for Stealing Signals. 
please check out his Omni Fantasy if you have any interest in that. Really, really cool format there. If you want a 10% discount to Rotoviz, uh, use the coupon code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. Uh, follow us on your different podcast apps. Leave us a rating review. We appreciate all those. We'll see you guys soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.